Welcome to Race and Democracy, a podcast on the intersection between race, democracy, public policy, social justice, and citizenship. Welcome. Good evening. Um, so excited to be here this evening. Uh, it's a long time coming, and many people have uh, shown support uh, to help this evening come come true. Uh, my name is Peniel Joseph. I'm the Barbara Jordan Chair in Political Values and Ethics at the LBJ School of Public Affairs. And I'm also a professor of history in the College of Liberal Arts. And I'm the founding director of the Center for the Study of Race and Democracy here at the University of Texas at Austin. And the CRD's mission is to promote engaged research and scholarship focused on the ways issues of race, democracy, and public policy impact the lives of global citizens. And on that score, we've uh, convened symposiums, conferences. Uh, we have undergraduate and graduate fellows who do engage research, um, all related to issues of inequality, of racial justice, of intersectional justice when we think about race, class, gender, sexuality, uh, uh, gender identification, um, and small d democracy, meaning this idea of uh, democratic institutions and democratic political thought and processes that have nothing to do exclusively with political parties. And so we're very, very pleased tonight to uh, host uh, Dr. Henry Louis Gates Jr. as part of the William C. Powers Jr. Speaker Series. And I want to uh, read why this series is so important. Uh, this series honors the memory of President William C. Powers Jr. Uh, uh, former president of University of Texas at Austin, by inviting thought leaders to present research in American politics and public policy in reflection of President Powers' steadfast commitment to diversity and inclusion. This series is sponsored by the Lyndon B. Johnson School of Public Affairs and the Center for the Study of Race and Democracy. Uh, I'd also like to thank uh, our entire team at the center that helped to organize this event. Um, Emily Dunkley is our program coordinator who's done indefatigable, uh, you know, a job to, to pull this through. Uh, Barbara Kufiadin, um, Maddie Donham, uh, Janelle Ajani, um, all of our staff, um, and really friends at LBJ, including Ellen, Eileen, excuse me, who, who helped uh, organize this. I want to I definitely thank them. I also want to thank uh, Jeannie and Mickey Klein for their generous support uh, in making this possible. And uh, lastly, I want to thank really all of our students, our faculty, our staff, and really everyone in the Austin community who came out here uh, to the Blanton, and we have more people coming for this evening with Dr. Henry Louis Gates, Jr. So <laughs> without further ado, um, Dr. Henry Louis Gates, Jr., I'll call him Skip because I consider him a dear friend and mentor, uh, is a national treasure. He is the Alphonse Fletcher University professor and director of the Hutchins Center for African and African American Research at Harvard University. He's an Emmy and Peabody award-winning filmmaker, literary scholar, journalist, cultural critic, and institution builder. Many of us know him from his uh, PBS series, Finding Your Roots, and Professor Gates was at the cutting edge 
of understanding that genealogical research could be used to build bridges across racial and ethnic divisions, not just at the national level, but globally as well. He has, he has made 21 films, and we're gonna see a clip from his latest, Reconstruction America After the Civil War. And Professor Gates's work is intimately concerned with the fullness of the black experience. Uh, he has been an institution builder at Harvard University as the founding chair of the Department of African American Studies at Harvard, but he's also been an institution builder in popularizing African American studies and African studies uh, globally. Uh, Dr. Gates has made the pursuit of learning about the fullness of black humanity a lifelong passion. And he does this not just through, not just through scholarship, but he also does this through stories. Uh, in his best-selling memoir, Colored People, he talks about being raised in Piedmont, West Virginia, and the stories that his father told him while growing up. And he became a master storyteller, not just as a literary scholar and as a public intellectual and as a professor, but also as a filmmaker, as a television host, and as somebody who's really brought the study of the black experience and the Afro-Caribbean, Afro-Latino, Latinx, African experience to global audiences. So when I think about um, Skip's impact, Skip has really been the most influential um, intellectual, as far as I'm concerned, of the black experience and really of race and democracy uh, in, in the 20th and the 21st century, really ranking alongside of people like W.E.B. Du Bois as an institution builder. Uh, so whether you, whether you may agree or disagree with, with what the black experience actually means, Skip has made an argument that there are a million ways of being black. And we should really investigate and take those different ways seriously. So in that, he's challenged all kinds of orthodoxies across ideological spectrums. And for that, um, we, we should be grateful. The recipient of 55 honorary degrees and numerous prizes, Dr. Gates was a member of the first class of MacArthur Genius Grants. Uh, awarded by the MacArthur Foundation in 1981. In 1998, he became the first African-American scholar to be awarded the National Humanities Medal. He was named to Time's 25 Most Influential Americans list in 1997, to Ebony's Power 150 list in 2009. He earned his BA in English and Literature summa cum laude from Yale University, and his MA and PhD in English Literature from Clare College at the University of Cambridge. Professor Gates has directed the WEB, what is now the Hutchins Center, since arriving at Harvard in 1991. And during his last 15 years on campus, he chaired, his first 15 years on campus, he chaired the Department of African and Afro-American Studies as it, as it expanded into a full-fledged doctoral program. He is also a member of the American Academy of Arts and Letters and serves on a wide array of boards, including the New York Public Library, the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, the Aspen Institute, Jazz at Lincoln Center, the Whitney Museum of, of American Art, Library of America, and the Brookings Institution. I think one of the most uh, coolest aspects of Professor Gates's legacy is that he's got his portrait uh, hung up in the National Portrait Gallery uh, at the Smithsonian. But also, for those of us like myself who are really interested in pop culture, 
Uh, Skip makes a fantastic appearance in Watchmen. And Watchmen is, is, was such a great, great series that talked about race, that talked about Tulsa, and he made an appearance as the Secretary of Treasury. So, um, you know, we had our first African-American Secretary of Treasury right here with Dr. Gates. So, we are gonna see a clip right now um, of Reconstruction, America After the Civil War, which is Dr. Gates' latest film, and then we are gonna hear from Professor Gates himself. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Peniel, thank you uh, for that very kind and generous introduction. Um, but you left out the most important thing, brother, <laughs> which is that I am your daughter's godfather. <laughs> How about that, huh? That's... I want to talk to you about um, Reconstruction, but also just race and democracy the 1619 project, the 2020 election. Sure. What, what can we, because you're, right now, you're, you're not, like I said in the introduction, I think what's extraordinary about you is really your intellectual curiosity. And that you, and not just about things, but also about people, about ideas. Whoever you meet, you, you, you make them feel like they're the only person in the room, that they really matter, which I really appreciate. Um, when you think about reconstruction, and I think you're right, that it's a, a narrative that most people don't know, and I, I love the fact that your films reach millions of people, and so we're, we're really, um, you're, you're sort of a general in that narrative war. Brian Stevenson as, as well, yes. right? Uh -huh. um, and we, we had Sherilyn Eiffel, and she's part of that narrative war person. too. Yeah, yeah, brilliant. Um, I'm on her board. You're on her board, absolutely. <laughs> um, when we think about reconstruction and racial slavery, uh, New York Times had the 1619 Project. Khalil Muhammad was part of it, Nicole Hannah-Jones, all these great people. In a lot of ways, I always thought about your work vis-a-vis -vis that, because I think your work has been trailblazing in terms of making us look at not just racial slavery, but even, even ancient African history all the way to the present. Right. Right? Um, both in art and culture and politics. This narrative war that you're talking about, what can we do now, all of us here in this room, people come... To, to hear you speak in the context of 2020 and even beyond, and how can that impact us in, in terms of trying to transform citizenship it's and democracy? A great question. My, my motivation, um, thank you very much for the, the compliments that you gave me. I love people. It's something you can't fake. You know, I love a good story, and I love people, and everybody's got a good story. Um, Put it up closer. And, oh, I'm yeah, closer? Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah. You want me to say it again? <laughs> I love people. I love a good story. My father was a great storyteller. And my mother, um, my mother was the first colored secretary of the PTA in Piedmont, West Virginia, as we would have said yeah. back then. And all the black people in my town would go to the monthly meeting to see my mother stand up and read the minutes. 
And mama would write the obituary for all the black people in the Potomac Valley, where I grew up. Remember, where I grew up is halfway between Pittsburgh and Washington on the Potomac River, 2,000 people. And um, she was just the obituary writer for people would call and say, Pauline, you know, my mother died, would you uh, write something? And it would be in the paper, and then she would go to, to church and stand up and read that obituary. So my first image of a writer was my own beautiful mother. Mm -hmm. And my father was just so funny. My father made Red Fox look like an undertaker. You know? <laughs> when we would be coming back from the church, I would go to all these uh, performances, as far as I was concerned, before I started first grade. And my father and mother would be walking. They'd be holding their hands, and I'd be holding their hands. And my father would say, my mother's name was Pauline, Pauline Augusta Coleman. Say, Pauline, you did such a good job today. I started to get up and open the casket to see if that son of a bitch was still buried in there. <laughs> <laughs> now, how could I not love stories? I was just raised with humor. My goal has been to be multilingual. Mm -hmm. I, the book I got tenure on was The Signifying Monkey, which is all about post-structuralism and deconstruction. My brother... Um, is an oral surgeon. He just retired. And I remember he said to me, when are you going to write a book that mom and daddy could read? And I sat down and wrote Colored People. Yeah, you remember. Um, and, well, my mom died, and my daughters uh, were little kids, and I wanted them to remember the colored world of the 50s and really my mother. Mm -hmm. And so, and the, the reaction to that book was, really great. I've been made a lot of bestseller lists. And then the same year, um, a woman from England wrote me a letter. And she had seen me on a book, a late night. Uh, it's like um, The Tonight Show in England, yeah. but for books. And I was on it talking about the Cannon Wars of the 1990s, trying to get the Norton anthologies, put Zora Neale Hurston and Frederick Douglass and mm -hmm. Gene Tuber in them. You know, and I was part of that war, which we won. And she wrote to me and she said, I was in bed, I watched you, and I could put you in front of a camera. You can be a host or a narrator, you know, a presenter, they call it in England. And you know what, ladies and gentlemen? I had never told anybody, never. But when I first saw uh, Kenneth Clark's Civilization, which you two will remember, um, uh, and uh, which is about the history of Western art. And then Jacob Brunowski's The Ascent of Man, 1969. I, I can't remember The Ascent of Man, early 70s, when there's an academic in front of the camera talking to you and walking you through a thing. I was raised to be a medical doctor. Mm. But I was at Yale, and I watched these documentaries, and I thought, man, that I really would like a chance to do that. But it was so unlikely you know, I was going to be a medical doctor. I even took a year off of a program, kind of like the Peace Corps, that Yale had. That It was called Five Year BA. It was such a cool program. You took the year off between a gap year in the middle of your education between your sophomore and junior year. And you went to the so-called third world, the developing world. They only picked 12 kids. Very competitive. I applied, and I always wanted to go to Africa, and I went to Tanzania, and I yeah. worked in a... I worked in a, a mission hospital. How Were you 19 when you did this? Yeah, I turned yeah. 20 in the village of Kilimatindi. And anyway, this woman wrote me a, a letter and just named 
my secret desire. I mean, I can't tell you what a miracle this is. And I was so stunned, I threw it in the trash. You know, like, I didn't want to get my hopes. And she wrote me again, and she wrote me again. And just, no internet, man. It was just like the yeah. mail. Yeah. And finally, she flew all the way over from London. She had her own production company. And to have breakfast with me in Cleveland, mm -hmm. where we give the Annisfield Wolf Book Awards, yeah. the Multicultural Pulitzer Prize. And I go, what do you want with me? And she goes, I'm going to make you a star. You just don't know it, you know? Yeah. And um, she goes, I'm going to raise the money. And so the first documentary I did was for the BBC series called The Great Rail Journeys. And um, a well-known person spends three weeks riding with a film crew on trains somewhere in the world. And they wanted me to do it in Japan or South America. And I go, no, but I'll do it in Africa. Mm. And I would do it only under two conditions. If you let me take my daughters, who were mixed race, one was 12 and one was 14. And so the conceit was the professor of African and African-American studies um, trying to get his mixed race children to find their roots in Africa, right? And I said, uh, the other condition was that the, the route the, the three weeks would end in the village in central Tanzania where I had lived when I was 19 and had my 20th birthday. So they said, deal on Africa, but taking two adolescents to Africa, are you crazy? You know, adolescents are totally out of control. And I said, okay, I'm not gonna do it then. And they said, all right, we'll send a producer over to have dinner with your family to see if your kids, <laughs> you know, could handle this. So I set my daughters down and I said, if you blow this, you You know, like, call me sir, yes daddy, you know. And so it and worked out. Were, and they were perfect. And the reason that the film worked, there were two reasons. One, I was so pompous and I was so nervous. I wanted this so bad. I wanted to do such a good job. I had no training. Um, and... So I would give them little lectures and they would roll their eyes. So in effect, the conceit, as I said, was that I was trying to get them to find their African roots. And their response was, our African roots are in Lexington, Massachusetts. Thank you very much. Now, when, can I get, when can I get a Big Mac? I just want to get out of here. And then I had a cameraman who taught me those things when I look at the camera. They're called piece of the camera or stand-ups. You, you see them on the evening news. They're very hard to do. And he taught me how to do them. And so that was the beginning of my career. All right, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I want to get a couple of questions in right here. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna. No, what he wants, he <laughs> wants gonna, me to do his podcast after you all yeah. leave. So he's no, trying no, no, to no, get no, rid no. of you. So we're gonna use this, um, <laughs> if anything. So reconstruction, 2020 election, why is it important? And I'm gonna br briefly, and then I'm gonna ask another question about the new documentary okay, too. Okay, yes. that's great. Um, 2020 election, what time is it? Uh, you know, it's uh, the polls will be closing and we'll know tonight. But voting rights, March 7th is gonna be 55 years since Edmund Pettus Bridge. You just sure. talked about John Lewis, who I've met too, I love. Um, and voter suppression, voter is, suppression is rampant. And so how do we connect Reconstruction to that? We just did. Yeah. I mean, we have, tell to, us. we have to fight against 
voter suppression, we have to fight against the rollback of women's rights, rights to have an yeah. abortion, um, you know, that we have to be vigilant. We have a conservative Supreme Court yeah. that's hell-bent on rolling back affirmative action. I don't know about your generation, but I went, I went to Yale, as you know, yes. in September 69. Uh, I was one of 96 black kids who hit Yale um, in September 69. You know who was in my class? Sheila. Sheila Jackson Lee over in Houston. Yes. I met Sheila at a party on the yeah. Saturday night. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Kurt Schmoke, the first black mayor of Baltimore. Baltimore yes. Um, Let's see, there was a little nerdy guy who was pre-med. I always forget ben his Carson. name. Ben Carson. Oh, man, that was my joke. <laughs> <you know? laughs> oh, I thought you were giving that to me. Okay, sorry about that. <laughs> no, and Candy Carson, his wife, who was in the class behind okay. him. We never, and we were the, the children of affirmative action. Why do I say that? Because the class of 66 at Yale had six black guys to graduate. What was their genetic blip in the race? And all of a sudden, there were 90 more smart black people in 69 they were. Of course not. There was a racist quota on the number of black people who could go to Yale. There was a quota on the number of Jews who could get in. A quota even till 63 on the number of Irish um, people who could get in. So we have to fight against the rollback of affirmative action, women's rights, the right to vote. It's the future of our democracy is at stake. And it affects all of us, black, white, male, female, gay, straight. It is the most urgent um, problem confronting our democracy today. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, want, I want to ask you about the, the new film that you're, you're currently in the process of making. The one you asked me if you could star in back there in the <laughs> I don't know if I really did, but yeah, I'd, I'd like to, if, even if I, if, if, if I didn't say that. Yeah, thank you. Um, well, you know, most of us think that the great, during the Great Migration, all the black people in the South left and went north. But everybody in the South knows that's not true. The black middle class didn't move. Martin Luther King, whose grandfather, whose third generation minister at uh, Ebenezer, Martin Luther King only left the South. He went to Morehouse. He only left the South to go to BU to get a PhD and then went back to the South. Andy Young's father was a dentist in... Um, um, uh, New Orleans. I want to make, I want to do what Dr. Du Bois called lifting the veil. Said black, the, the Negro world was a world behind the veil. I want to lift that world and see what black people did once Jim Crow was imposed mm. in the segregated, but it's going to be called um, Making Black America, the Segregated North and the Segregated South. Yeah, and I like that you're saying segregated North because the narrative, and you've been talking about narratives this evening, says that somehow black people had it easier, in quotes, in the North. Right. That, that it wasn't as segregated, it wasn't as bad. And, and what, what's the reality? Well, the reality is black people could vote in the North. Um, as you well know, and, and um, many, not all schools were integrated. As you know, better than anybody in this room, Malcolm X went to. Um, a white school, yes, right in uh, Michigan. In right? Michigan, yep. And um, if you haven't read Peniel's book on um, uh, Malcolm and Martin, you should. It's Peniel's a great scholar, and he is. He's brilliant <laughs> and a great communicator. Don't step on your applause line. So no, <laughs> so no one has told that story, and I want to show how healthy black culture was. Mm -hmm. How black people, when they were denied access um, 
to white institutions um, form their own institutions. So on the one hand, Malcolm X went to a white school in the eighth grade or whatever it was, mm -hmm. but Yale had a quota on black kids till 1969. You know, there were, so that's why Thurgood Marshall met Charles Hamilton Houston, who would graduate from Harvard Law School at Howard. I would, without affirmative action, I would have gone to college. Three generations of my family. Um, my, the first member of my family graduated from a woman, my great aunt, from Howard Nursing School, what became the nursing school, mm -hmm. in 1909. And then three generations of dentists and doctors have graduated from Howard. So I would have gone to Howard or Morehouse, but I wouldn't have gone to Yale. And that's what affirmative action did. And, and because of affirmative action, black middle class doubled and the black upper middle class quadrupled since the day Martin Luther King was killed. But the percentage of black children at a poverty line is still remarkably close to what it was when Martin Luther King was alive. So that affirmative action created a class divide within the black community. And you talk about the segregated South as well. What are some interesting um, complexities that you're uncovering? Well, there. there was a huge black middle class in okay. the South that continued to thrive. Look at Vernon Jordan. Yes. You know, his mother was in the black middle class. She was a caterer. And all these people um, that, the, the, it started with the free Negro community. If you look at the 1860 federal census, I know you all are going to do this when you go home, you know, <laughs> look it up. There were 488,000 free black people in 1860. Mm -hmm. And there were 3.9 million enslaved black people. Of that 488,000 black people, 262,000 lived in the South. It's counterintuitive. 222,000 lived in the North. Mm -hmm. It is counterintuitive. You would think that they lived outside the South. We were taught that you were like Frederick Douglass. As soon as you could, you ran away. Yes. Right? But once, in my, my case, um, when one set of my fourth great grandparents were freed, we have Abraham Van Meter's will in Hardy County, Virginia, now West Virginia. Again, 30 miles from where I was born. And he gave them 1,000 acres of land. Mm -hmm. So if you're free, what are you going to do? Leave 1,000 acres of land and do what? Go to New York, be homeless? <laughs> you know, live where you don't know anybody? Of course not. So people were freed. Um, freeing a slave was punitive. You had to give uh, them something to survive. And people stayed in the South. And they built churches and schools, which are excellent. Um, and if you were college educated, you couldn't get a job at a white institution, mm -hmm. so you went back and you taught at a black high school, like Dunbar High School in Washington or M Street High School, which was as good as Exeter or Andover, you know? So, and, and the, the, the Elks and the Odd Fellows and all those fraternal organizations wouldn't integrate. So you, and like the Prince Hall Masons, mm -hmm. the, the Masons were integrated, so you started your own Masons. They created a world within a world and um, I want to tell that story. It's a, a marvelous story. And in some ways, um, some things were lost when under desegregation, and other things weren't. You know? What are some of the things that were lost under desegregation, you think? Well, that sense of community, I don't want to over-romanticize um, it, but because of residential segregation, you had a multi-class neighborhood. The doctor, the dentist, the undertaker, the lawyer, lived not too far away from a janitor or a maid or you know um, um, a factory worker. So there was more of a sense of community. And of course, as soon as you could, as soon as resi residential segregation ended, you wanted to live where people in your economic class lived. So when we, William Julius Wilson, as you know, is an expert on this, 
when work disappears. So people moved to the suburbs. And then that left um, a black, <coughs> you know, uh, disenfranchised, disenfranchised economic class on its own with no role models in the inner city. Okay, final question. Um, I wanna, one, I mean, thank you for, for what you've done here tonight and really for all the work you do. But I want you to um, leave us with a charge, really, in the sense of, you talked about this narrative war, right? And this, this idea, you're doing the work. How can all of us, one, support the work you're doing, but really right here in Austin, Texas, beside absolutely watching Finding Your Roots you know, on the weekly. Oh, I would never do that. And, right. and, and uh, all your films, what can, we, what can we do to participate and contribute to this narrative That's war? That's a great question. You know what? I think the most powerful two things you could do, register and vote. And finally, whenever white supremacy rears its ugly head in any of its pernicious um, manifestations, anti-Semitism, anti-black racism, anti-immigrant feeling, xenophobia, homophobia. Whenever white supremacy rears its ugly head, we have to join together in interracial coalitions and crush it till it's dead. All right, that's, that's the mic drop. That's it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you all. Thank you, Dr. Henry Louis Gates, Jr. Thank you for all of you for coming out tonight. This is an extraordinary evening. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this episode, and you can check out related content on Twitter at Peniel Joseph. That's P-E-N-I-E-L-J-O-S-E-P-H. And our website, csrd.lbj.utexas.edu. And the Center for Study of Race and Democracy is on Facebook as well. This podcast was recorded at the Liberal Arts Development Studio at the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. Thank you.